When it comes to treating chronic pain, the tendency is to trial different drugs to see which one is most effective. Unfortunately, many of the medication options have limited effectiveness. Some, such as opioids, have serious risks involved, even though they are effective for pain relief. As Canada's opioid crisis unfolds with no end in sight, perhaps it is time for physicians to examine and reflect on the role of opioids in medical practice. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Yurlink, Staff Internist and Head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and a scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. Dr. Yurlink published a commentary in CMAJ in which he argues that physicians need to rethink what doing well means for patients on chronic opioid therapy. I reached Dr. Yearling today in Toronto. Hello, Dave. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm good. First, by way of full disclosure to our listeners, Dave, I should mention that this is not the first time you and I have discussed the topic of opioid use in clinical practice. In fact, you and I recently published a paper together on one important factor that led to clinicians overprescribing opioids. So I know this is a topic in which you've invested a great deal of personal energy and attention in recent years. So it's really great to be able to have you share some of your perspectives on this issue with our listeners today. Now, it's impossible for any of us to avoid recognizing that prescription opioids have become a society-wide crisis that's killing a lot of Canadians. But when we think of this problem, I think we typically picture people buying opioids on the street, often not knowing what they're getting, maybe injecting them in back alleys and then overdosing. But your commentary focuses instead on patients who have been on opioids that were legitimately prescribed by their physician as therapy for chronic pain relief. Why did you feel it was important to focus on this group of people now? Well, you've touched on it in a way. I mean, this is a, a complex and a multifaceted crisis, and we see media reports almost daily about one aspect or another. The, the focus of late has increasingly been on issues surrounding addictions, so skyrocketing death rates, you know, largely due to fentanyl and its analogs, um, naloxone, supervised consumption sites. I mean, these are, uh, these are important news items, but as we hear about them, we hear a sharpening of the narrative that we've heard for some time now, that this is an issue of patients versus addicts. And I hate the word addicts, but it, it does get used quite a lot. Um, the, the tacit implication of that patients versus addicts uh, framing is that um, if you're on opioids and you don't exhibit features of addiction, principally loss of control over use and, and ongoing harm despite use, that everything's just fine regardless of the dose. I mean, we hear this over and over again in uh, newspapers and on radio and in social media. And that narrative, uh, uh, it's, it's embraced by some very vocal patients by some journalists and by no small number of doctors, including many, not all, but many in the field of pain. And it's one, by the way, that pharma is quite keen to support and promote in any way uh, it can. The problem uh, is that it's uh, very often not true and it's therefore dangerous. And if we don't address it head on, uh, we risk perpetuating the misuse of a, a valuable but uh, potentially dangerous class of drugs to the detriment of our patients. And so uh, to, to address it head on, we have to think uh, not just about individual anecdotes of success, but instead think about the pharmacology of these drugs. And they are drugs. And so thinking about the pharmacology of 
you know, what happens to patients on them is, is not exactly um, asking all that much. I mean, it's actually something we have to do. In your commentary, you say that the war on pain is one of the most spectacular failures of modern medicine. What do you mean by that? Well, um, no one argues with the idea that pain and chronic pain in particular is an enormous problem and that we need better ways of dealing with it. But the war that I'm referring to here is the one that really took root in the 1990s, uh, in which the push for better pain care, a laudable goal, uh, was corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry. This is, you know, led by major national organizations in the U.S. and in Canada that were, uh, in some instances, uh, just marketing devices of the, of the drug industry, uh, and led by well-meaning pain dogs, mostly well-meaning at least, some of whom made uh, careers and large amounts of money preaching the gospel of opioids with claims about the effectiveness and safety of opioids and encouraged the prescribing of these drugs for years at a time, often at uh, dangerously high doses, based on nothing more than anecdote and wishful thinking. Uh, and so I've seen this firsthand, and you have too. I mean, an entire generation of physicians has come to perceive opioids as our best, strongest pain medicines, drugs that we, we shouldn't hesitate to prescribe for both acute and chronic pain. Uh, the reality, I think, is that opioids do have an important role in medicine, but this messaging uh, that we got, one that I think doctors were happy to hear, uh, has harmed millions of people in one way or another. You urge physicians to take a moment and reflect on the true goal of pain medication for chronic pain, which you say is not simply pain relief. So then what is the true goal of pain medication? Every drug that we give a patient has the potential to benefit and the potential to harm them. Uh, and, uh, you know, one scenario where this assessment is easy is in uh, confronted with a patient who is looking for antibiotic for their cold. We, we don't give them antibiotics for their cold because it's not got any chance of helping them and it has a small risk of hurting them. The, the calculus on that's easy. Uh, with opioids, it's more challenging. Um, the goal is to help the patient more than you harm them. And of course, pain relief is subsumed under benefit, just as quality of life and function and return to work are. But we know that the benefits of opioids attenuate with time. They become less effective uh, over months and years, in part because of tolerance uh, and sometimes because of hyperalgesia, the concept that these drugs can, in some people, increase sensitivity to pain. But importantly, not only do the benefits attenuate, but the harms can persist or even accrue, especially as the dose goes up. And the dose often goes up in response to that loss of effectiveness. So no one quibbles with the notion that addiction and overdose and death are real tangible harms. Um, but some of the other harms of opioids can be really hard for both the patient and the doctor to discern. It's very different than, for example, acetaminophen or NSAIDs, where you know most of the side effects are pretty obvious. Um, and I guess I would single out physical dependence as um, one of the more malignant harms of opioids because it can, in some patients, give them the impression uh, and their physician the impression that the patient is benefiting and needs the drug because in its absence, uh, they don't feel very well. So, you know, when I guess to summarize, when the, when the benefits attenuate and the harms persist, or accrue over time, that the main goal of therapeutics has been upended. And I think 
Um, this is something that I see uh, with some regularity in my practice. Patients who come to hospital and they've been on opioids for years at a time, often on two or three or four or 500 milligrams of morphine or equivalent. And it's very difficult to make the case that that is a patient who is really, when you think about it, being helped more than harmed. So I'll ask you to elaborate a bit on harms. We all know about addiction, overdose, and death from opioids. You mentioned tolerance and hyperalgesia. What are some of the other harms that you describe as coming from taking opioids for a long time? Well, um, this is a long list. Uh, most docs recognize constipation as a as a harm. And it, it for some patients, it's an annoyance. For some, it's quite debilitating. And many docs, including um, myself, I, I've had patients die under my care from complications of opiate-induced constipation. Um, but they are a well-recognized risk factor for falls and for fractures. There's a robust body of data out there now to show us that opiates are a risk factor, a dose-dependent risk factor for motor vehicle collisions. They uh, impair sleep quality. They, they mess with sleep architecture. They um, contribute to sleep-disordered breathing. They, in men, can suppress testosterone. In women, they can contribute to infertility and osteoporosis. There's you know, a growing body of evidence suggesting that they are a risk factor for infection. But if I was to single out a couple of particularly worrisome ones, they would be hyperalgesia, um, you know, the idea that uh, someone who's on six or 700 of morphine or equivalent uh, has their pain in part due to the drug itself. And it's amazing and gratifying to see patients who uh, tapered cautiously find that their pain has improved. I'd add depression to this mix. Um, no one has any problem ascribing depression to uh, the pain itself or to some other factor. But uh, rarely do doctors or patients entertain the notion that opioids might be a risk factor for depression. And there's a very robust body of evidence to suggest exactly that. But um, I alluded earlier to dependence. I mean, uh, this is a particularly malignant adverse effect. It, it's, it's the elephant in the room. Uh, it was sold to us in the late 90s and early 2000s as uh, an expected adaptive response to taking an opioid agonist long term. In fact, it happens in a couple of days. Uh, that it, and the idea would be that it's easily overcome by tapering when the time came. And it's nowhere near that simple. I mean, in, in some people, Dependence and the, the cycle of dependence and, with, and withdrawal can, can masquerade as benefit. Um, you know, nobody has trouble stopping their statin or their non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. But like benzos and SSRIs and other drugs, opioids are different. Okay? When, when stopping a medicine makes you feel unwell, including, by the way, worsening of pain, and resuming the medicine makes you feel better, it's, it's very easy to understand how a thoughtful, intelligent patient can come to view the drug as effective or even essential. And it's easy to understand why they take issue with someone like me who suggests that the benefit might not be quite what it seems. But it, it, it's my contention that for many patients, especially those on higher doses of opioids, the drugs are needed not so much for pain relief, the reason why they were started in the first place, uh, but to avoid withdrawal. And so, you know, when the benefit of a drug becomes in whole or uh, in part the avoidance of withdrawal, as it unequivocally does at high doses especially, you can see how this obfuscates the assessment of, of benefits versus harms. And that's why it's important to think about this, not simply from an anecdote perspective, but to think about the pharmacology as we, as we weigh whether we're helping or harming our patients. Speaking of people taking issue with you, you write, 
to question the use of opioids for chronic pain is to draw the ire of patients and sometimes the displeasure of colleagues. What sort of negative reactions have you personally encountered from patients and perhaps more importantly, colleagues when you raise this issue? And why do you think you get those reactions? Uh, first point I would make is that the patient's responses are probably more important to me than the doctor's responses. Although I'd like to see doctors change their thinking on this. Uh, patients are often quite uh, vocal about the perception of benefit that they derive or a loved one derives from opioids. Um, and again, as I say, that's a, it's an entirely understandable perception. And, and I don't exclude the possibility that somewhere out there, there are patients who are being benefited more than harmed by opioids, but I think it's a small minority of patients who are currently on them. Uh, the pain docs in particular are the ones who I think are most, uh, most unhappy with this message. And I think I've encountered quite a few over the last uh, seven or eight years, um, some of whom I would say have a, a tremendous degree of circumspection and an appreciation for the limitations of opioids. Uh, and they, many of them actually use them for chronic pain in a way similar to me. Uh, but there are others who I think are really invested in this notion that uh, the drugs are more helpful than I think their pharmacology um, suggests. And you can understand why they would want to feel that way. I mean, their belief systems and in some cases their legacies uh, are tied to these drugs. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough situation. I mean, I, I, get, uh, I get emails and I get voicemails and I get plenty of replies on Twitter about exactly this issue. Uh, it's, uh, it comes with the territory. I mean, you either state your views and try to help people understand why you hold them or you don't. Uh, and when you state your views, as I do, um, even in a, a tactful way, uh, it's, it's easy to, um, to irritate people who, who disagree. All right, so let's go into what you're telling clinicians to do in your commentary. You describe a, a typical patient who seems to be doing well, so-called, on high-dose opioids, and this patient firmly believes that the opioids are beneficial, even if, as you say, they may be only using them to avoid the symptoms of withdrawal. What do you say to physicians that they should do once they've identified a patient like that? Keeping in mind that different doctors will give very different answers to that question, I think it's important that the physician... Um, as tempting as it might be to accept the anecdote and move on to the next patient in the waiting room. I think it's helpful to think about the balance of benefits versus harms and to say to the patient, I mean, if you, if you come to accept my assertion, which specifically is that uh, on high doses in particular, patients are being harmed more than helped, even if it doesn't seem that way. Um, it's our job, I think, to help the patient understand this too. And, and this is a very, very difficult task. It's one of the most difficult things, one of the most difficult discussions um, a doctor can have. I mean, uh, and what I do is I think it, it starts with helping the patient understand by saying something to the effect of, you know, as your doctor, my goal is to help you manage your chronic pain. But it's also my goal to be mindful of the ways that various pain medicines can harm you. And to be mindful of the fact that sometimes those side effects are really hard for you or me to recognize. Uh, no one should be trying to take their medicines away. The goal should be, and we should help patients understand that our goal is to try and help them feel better and be more functional. But again, it's a very difficult discussion and it doesn't take 10 minutes. It takes an hour or more, and it often takes repeated uh, visits with, with this theme in mind. Patients are reluctant to taper. Um, 
I mean, some taper without too much difficulty. Um, others are very fearful of withdrawal. And I think if you could help them realize that that alone is a side effect of the drug, um, help them understand that, that a very gradual taper poses no harm to them. Uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint, as a colleague of both yours and mine is often quoted as saying. And, and share with them anecdotes and observations of, of patients who really find with gradual tapers that their pain improves and their depression improves and, and very frequently their function improves. Um, I think that's, that's what doctors have to help uh, patients do. All right, but let me focus a little further on this. I mean, chronic pain is called chronic pain for a reason. Um, do you think there's ever any room for accepting the patient anecdote? And is are, are we considering patient values and preferences enough in, in making sort of the judgments that, that you're putting forward? What would you say to a patient who tells you, you know, I couldn't live with the chronic pain that I used to have, and now on opioids, I can live with that. And I understand everything you're saying, Dr. Yearlink, about uh, addiction and the risk of death and, and side effects. But you know what? I accept those risks because for me, I value being rid of my chronic pain more than I value avoiding the risk of death. Is, is there any uh, opportunity to consider that perspective? Oh, there is, and we should. Um, and I think it really is a case-by-case assessment. And if faced with a patient like that, and after really weighing and thinking about their situation, it, it was my belief that they might be one of the patients who is being helped more than harmed. I think that um, that it's the sort of anecdote that we can accept and, and work with, even if we do try to make some changes that we can talk about perhaps a bit later. But I think I think it's important to recognize, um, and this is a this is a comment that um, that sometimes draws the ire of patients. It's important to recognize that that for some patients, and especially those on the higher doses of opioids, that the patient's values and, and, um, and preferences, while important, are to a certain extent the result of being on opioids for years at a time. Uh, it's not hyperbole to say that these drugs can hijack an individual's neurophysiology. They do exactly that. Uh, and so, um, I would, I, you know, again, I would undertake a, an assessment. If I, that patient, for example, the one you've described to me, uh, happened to be, uh, just to, to make it an absurd scenario, on 800 of morphine, I would uh, posit or I would make the case to you that, that, uh, that it's not possible that that patient is being helped more than harmed. The primary benefit of the 800 milligrams of morphine or equivalent that that patient is deriving is that they're not going into withdrawal and they might seem functional and they might be holding down a job and they might be to you know, any you know, external observer doing just fine, uh, but they might be doing fine despite the opioids. And how do we know how does the patient know and how does the doctor know how that patient might be doing 12 or 18 months from now if we could get down to a much, much lower dose? The point is that the side effects here are very, very difficult to um, ascertain. And the benefit, I mean, as I said before, it attenuates. We know this happens. Um, it is The benefit of opioids is not a dose-related phenomenon. The side effects are. And so I think uh, it, while it would be an individual assessment, my uh, appetite to accept it and not encourage the patient to taper would really depend on a, a variety of factors, but the dose among them would be quite important. I think that some of our palliative care colleagues might also take issue with some of your 
perspective sometimes, recognizing, of course, that chronic pain is, is different from palliative care, of course. But um, I think there is a concern by some that the emphasis now on avoiding and reducing opioid use uh, appropriately because of the crisis we're in may have unintended consequences to uh, not uh, facilitate the appropriate use of opioids in, in palliative contexts. Do you have any comment on that? Yes. I think. In fact, I think I'd expand upon the concern. So uh, I'll come back to the palliative issue in a moment. But one of the concerns uh, is that people who are on high doses of opioids uh, are being tapered abruptly by their doctors. Um, often the doctors trying to comply with a, a guideline, a CDC's guideline or the recent Canadian guideline. Um, doctors who are cutting their patients' doses abruptly haven't read the guideline closely enough. But they're trying to, in some instances, I think, escape regulatory scrutiny. In the U.S., they're not, they don't want to be tapped on the shoulder by the DEA or in Canada by their local college. Um, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, and so I think that is one of the important um, and not often enough talked about consequences of this debate is that as much as it's a bad idea to get patients to high doses of opioids, it is also a bad idea to drop their doses precipitously. By all means, encourage the patient to and get their buy-in to drop the doses slowly, but the key word is slowly and you go at the patient's pace. On the palliative care front, I think uh, you know, I agree. I mean, I've encountered patients who are reluctant to go on opioids for pain at the end of life because of fears of addiction. Um, I mean, that's clearly not appropriate. It, it's not that opioids are uh, uh, necessarily a whole lot better at managing pain at the end of life than they are managing chronic pain in someone who's 40 or 50. Um, I mean, in some instances, they, they do quite well. But in other instances, we've all seen patients on spectacular doses of opioids who are still suffering in pain, um, possibly because of the opioids. But the, the point I'm making here is that we fear the long-term consequences of opioids much less in someone who has six weeks or, or three months to live. Um, it's a different story when someone is 40 and by rights should live to 80 and um, might find themselves dying at 60 or 65, quite possibly of a complication of their therapy. You uh, talk in the commentary about that we should try to move away from a pill-centric model. How then would you have physicians approach the initiation of treatment for chronic pain? Well, I think, um, I mean, there's lots of things that could be done here. I mean, we, we really need better drugs. I mean, we've got a variety of meds that we resort to relatively liberally, uh, but they've uh, all got baggage of one sort or another, and very often we find ourselves with patients who haven't responded as well as we'd like. It, it's a testament to the um, the limitations of our relatively small toolkit of pain medicines. Uh, with regard to treating chronic pain, I think we um, need to embrace more the access to non-drug treatments, which is easy to say, right? But uh, your drug plan will pay for your pills, but it might not pay for your physio or for your cognitive behavioral therapy with a pain psychologist. Or, you know, we might advocate exercise for or weight loss for certain kinds of pain, depending on the patient. Those things are all harder to do than taking a pill. Um, but I think they are things that we need to consider. Um, I think we should also be more open to um, other drugs. And I'd add cannabinoids to that list. Uh, the usual argument against cannabis or cannabinoids for pain is that there's not a lot of data and cannabinoids have some side effects. And both of those claims are true. Um, but those claims are also true of opioids. And uh, it's simply a fact that the uh, the harms of cannabinoids don't hold a candle 
to those of opioids. I'm not suggesting that cannabis is a panacea, um, but if a patient says to me, a patient with chronic pain in his early 70s uh, is able to function well with occasional doses of a cannabis oil product, uh, I would think that's a win as opposed to an opioid. I think docs need to recognize that, that opioids, for chronic pain in particular, are a last resort and they're a last resort for a reason. And the reason is because they are a lousy treatment for most kinds of chronic pain that regardless of the messaging we've received over the last 20 years, they really do harm more than they help um, a, a sizable number of our patients. And any doctor who takes a strenuously different view of that, I think, hasn't thought this issue through quite enough. And, and if I can appeal to authority for a moment here, Daniel Claw, probably one of the most um, highly regarded physicians in pain medicine, sort of Michigan. He's on record as saying that he himself hasn't used opioids to treat chronic pain in, in more than a decade. But I think, you know, if, if doctors are going to use opioids for chronic pain, I think we need to start much, much less readily. Um, you know, use low doses. And for goodness sake, in, in 2017 and onward, it's not appropriate to start somebody in opioids and escalate them to 150 or 200 or 300 of morphine. It's just bad medicine. Um, I think we should be preferentially using immediate rather than sustained release products. We should be, um, you know, escalating doses infrequently, as I, as, as I say, we should be dispensing sensible quantities, giving somebody as their first prescription a month's worth of an opioid when they might not be able to tolerate it and the rest of their tablets sit in a medicine cabinet waiting for an enterprising 17-year-old to experiment is asking for trouble. And for goodness sakes, we have to stop. And I see this all the time. We have to stop co-prescribing opioids with benzodiazepines, quetiapine, or, you know, other sedating drugs and, and, and alcohol. I mean, there are few ways to harm a patient more easily than that. So let's go a bit further. Would you be prepared to say that we should not be prescribing opioids at all outside of hospital, given their harms? I think that's a bit much, a bit dogmatic. I do know people who think that way. Uh, I have no problem with the little old lady or little old man who's got horrible debilitating arthritis who takes the occasional Percocet tablet and that allows them to function. I don't necessarily know for sure that they're being helped more than harmed, uh, but uh, provided the dose is kept low and the uh, the effects of other uh, drugs or uh, sedatives and whatnot are minimized, I think it's it's hard to argue with that. But I think we need to be um, very cautious in, in making these assessments and you know, recognize that e even as somebody who thinks about this uh, a lot, I, I find it sometimes hard to weigh uh, the balance in an individual patient of the, the benefits and harms. But I, I use opioids myself for chronic pain, and I don't want people to think that they shouldn't be used. Um, I think what is fair to say is that their place in therapy is uncertain because it's never really been studied. You know, there's never been a randomized trial that takes a thousand kind of real world patients with chronic pain and gives them opioids versus non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and looks at meaningful outcomes at year one or year two. Um, I'm not sure if the docs and listeners to this podcast will realize, but you know, these drugs get on the market because they're done in, the RCTs are done in small groups of very carefully selected patients with chronic pain. Drugs are generally compared to placebo. And they look at pain scores or, you know, pain relief for eight or 12 or maybe 16 weeks um, at, for the most part, modest doses. Uh, and then we take them and we prescribe them for years at a time, uh, often to patients who would never, never made it into the randomized trials. Uh, and we escalate to doses that are, would not have been permitted in RCDs uh, because we're constantly trying to 
chase pain relief with drugs that have failed. Um, you know, we, we've all seen this, right? Someone starts with Percocet and they progress to OxyContin or OxyNeo now, and they, they progress then to hydromorphone. And when that fails, they go to fentanyl and they're still in pain. That's not how uh, we should be treating people with pain. We, we are, we're causing an awful lot of harm when we do that. Okay, last question. If we were to implement everything that needs to be done to bring an end to this opioid crisis that we're in, what would that look like, do you think? That would be complicated. I mean, this is a multifaceted crisis, as I said earlier, and there are many, many things that have to be done, but I guess they can be put into a few large uh, bins. The, the first and most urgent, I think, is that people with addiction, some of whom, by the way, got that way through well-intentioned therapy, they need help. They need help to not die today and to recover and stop using if they so choose. And so that involves ready access to uh, opioid agonists like buprenorphine or methadone or in the occasional patient even supervised injectable heroin. They need access to qualified addiction care, which is easy to say and maybe even easy to get in Toronto, but it might not be in a rural setting. Um, supervised consumption facilities. And we've got, I think, 17 or 18 of those now approved by our federal government, half or so, I think, are in operation. I mean, these are just common sense. I mean, people who are going to use drugs are either going to use them in these places where they can be revived if they overdose and, and they can get clean needles and swabs, and reduce the transmission of HIV and hep C and um, lower incidence of cellulitis and endocarditis, uh, uh, or they can use them in an alley or a park and they can die there alone. Um, and they need ready access to drugs like naloxone. I mean, this is a Band-Aid, but it's one heck of a Band-Aid. I think also, though, we have to view addiction as a public health issue. And it's not really, when you think about it, it's not a legal issue or a moral failing of some sort. Um, you often hear it said that we need to address the root causes of addiction, contributors to addiction. I think that's certainly true. Uh, childhood trauma and social isolation and economic disparities, and poor access to mental health care. And I, it's easy to say those things. It's quite another to do them, but they, they do have to be done. Uh, but I think it's also time for smarter drug policy. You know, people have always used drugs and they're always going to. And criminalizing this has made things worse, not better. It hasn't materially reduced access. What it has done is enriched organized crime and it's devoted vast amounts of societal resources to policing and prosecution and imprisonment. Those resources could be directed to treatment and prevention, you know, freeing up the police and courts to do more meaningful work. That's on the addiction side, but from the pain side, I think we need to approach the treatment of pain differently. For you know the reasons we discussed earlier, I think we need to use opioids um, differently. They have a place. I mean, they're very important drugs, but the place they have is not the one the place they should have is not the one they've enjoyed for the last 15 or 20 years. And it's, it's, it's important, and I'll just be blunt about this, it's important for doctors to realize that we have normalized a highly dangerous practice based on nothing more than anecdote and, and wishful thinking. It's all been made easier by, a, 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 by a, an effective and sometimes illegal uh, marketing campaign uh, in the face of a serious unmet need. Uh, the last point I'll make, and we've touched on it already, is that there are some forces in opposition to this message, especially around the treatment of pain. They're the patients, and their viewpoints are completely understandable. And there are some pain specialists who take a 180-degree view different from me. 
but then there's pharma. And so, uh, you know, people don't, I think, realize this. I mean, f- there, there, there are billions of dollars at stake here. And pharma in the U.S. at least has outspent the NRA, uh, I think, eightfold. Like, you know, they spent over a decade or so just shy of a billion with a B, a billion dollars opposing measures to curtail opioid prescribing in the form of lobbying and throwing money around to politicians and patient groups and PR companies. Uh, this, this is what makes this crisis. It's one of the things that makes this crisis different um, than, let's say, hormone replacement therapy, right? We, we stopped prescribing Premarin overnight, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, this is more challenging. Uh, and it's more challenging in part because there are some very, uh, some very uh, dark forces at play and a lot of money behind them. Dave, I want to thank you for what's been a fascinating conversation. You're an internationally renowned thought leader on this topic, and it's such a privilege to have you share your perspectives with our listeners today. Thanks very much. Well, I really thank you for the opportunity, Matthew. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Dr. David Yerlink, staff internist and head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and a scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. He wrote a CMAJ commentary called Rethinking Doing Well on Chronic Opioid Therapy. To read the article he authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcasts, let us know how we're doing. Please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels. 